It's uh, 14 minutes past 10. So, I mean, let's talk, shall we, about uh, that Zondo Commission report, uh, those 1,824 pages uh, <laughs> that have been giving some people, uh, you know, in our country ulcers. So after missing the June 15 deadline, remember the uh, report was originally meant to be given to the president by the 15th of June. The Chief Justice Raymond Zondo uh, has finally submitted part five and six of the report into state capture. Earlier in the week, the commission released a statement in which it said there'd been challenges involving the processing of the voluminous latest report. The final submission speak to the Friere Dairy Farm. They speak to here, us, the SABC. They speak um, about Arthur Fraser, the final submission of uh, the, at least amongst other subjects, the final submission of the Zondo Commission report into state capture ends an almost four-year process, August 2018 to June 2022, which required eight extensions and incurred a total cost of one billion rand. In this panel discussion, uh, we're struggling to get hold, by the way, of other panelists, but we'll keep adding them as we go. We want to look into the triumphs right, if at all, and the losses of the commission. We want to discuss the role of the whistleblowers, uh, the corporations that were implicated, uh, whether there's a case to be made to prosecute uh, political leaders, for example. What are the next steps? Do we as South Africans feel confident that, you know, our agencies will prosecute all the parties that have been implicated in the report, or as as uh, some would say, those who uh, the report recommended for prosecution. So we have Michael Marchant, who's head of investigations at uh, Open Secrets, and uh, we also have Cynthia Stimple, who was a whistle, who is a whistleblower and the author of Hijackers on Board. Good morning to the both of you. Maybe we start then with you, Michael, and look at these four years that cost us one billion rand, some lamenting the fact that uh, the scope um, of the commission was too narrow. It should have gone too far. We heard Zondo, uh, the chief justice, say last night that he said, you know, there were things that I had to not investigate because had I gone there, I would have stayed for another. uh, It would have gone up to 10 years, really. What are the wins? What are the losses of this one billion rent bill to us of this commission of inquiry into state capture? Good morning. Uh, morning, KG, and morning to the listeners. Um, these are these are very big questions, significant questions. I, I think that what we should first start, maybe start by acknowledging, is that there is so much noise around the release of the Commission's report, and that there is such a concerted effort by those who are implicated in um, corruption and state capture to discredit it. Um, And we have to understand, I think, where that noise is coming from um, and cut through it and rather deal with the contents of the report. I think that the Commission had an unenviable task of dealing with a huge amount of material. um, And that I think just to start off with the win is that what the Commission has been able to do in many places is it's been able to lay out in forensic detail over 5,000 pages across these reports 
that implicate many individuals, corporations, fixers, middlemen in state capture and corruption. Um, and I think that they're able to provide, and maybe this is something that we can get into in the discussion, is that they provide an unambiguous roadmap for the National Prosecuting Authority and law enforcement to say, these are the people that need to be prosecuted with urgency. I think in terms of what we, we can be slightly disappointed with in terms of uh, the commission, but also just efforts at, at accountability, is that the commission has had a lot of work to do and it's taken an enormous amount of time to do it. But it was very clear early on that this didn't mean that other things needed to stop. And I think that there's a, a rightful frustration amongst the public saying after all this time and after all this money, um, and now the commission is handing it over and saying, well, the MPA and others need to act. But our law enforcement agency should have been acting on this information many years ago. Mm. The information that went to the commission has been going to the prosecuting authority at exactly the same time. And I think if there's anything to be disturbed about, it is the fact that many of these cases, both complex and the more simple cases, have yet to see the courts and we've yet to see a successful prosecution. And that is really, I think, what the public wants to see at this point. Yeah, we are in conversation regarding the Zondo Commission report, uh, the report number five and report number six with Michael Marchant, who is head of investigations at Open Secrets. And we're going to go to break. But when we come back, I want to talk about a whistleblower. We have a whistleblower. Cynthia Stimple is a whistleblower and an author of Hijackers on Board. It became clear and apparent even in what has been was said yesterday when the report was delivered that you know, at the heart of who made the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture, what it ultimately would end up being were whistleblowers. Unfortunately, though, you know, look at what we did to whistleblowers, not just us as average South Africans, law enforcement agencies, government, uh, you know, and the degree to which no care was given to these whistleblowers. So we're going to uh, ask Cynthia when we come back from the commercial break, what life has been like for her as a whistleblower and the changes that whistleblowing effected into her life and into her day-to-day -day existence. It's 1021. You're listening to SAFM. SAFM, leading the conversation. Hashtag SAFM Talking Point. Welcome back. It's 1022. Cynthia Stimple is whistleblower and author of Hijackers on Board. Good morning, Cynthia. Life as a whistleblower does not at all sound good to me looking and listening from the outside. What has it been like for you? Cynthia? Cynthia, are you there? Maybe we, we, we stay with uh, uh, Michael and hear, um, as we're trying to get back Cynthia's line, and hear your take on the role of the whistleblower in this uh, commission, in, in the Commission of Inquiry. And we know that their lives, of course, have been tough as whistleblowers, but at the heart of, you know, the Commission of Inquiry are those people that were courageous and brazen and bold enough to say, you know, this is what I experienced and I feel it's important. It's my country duty for me to talk about it. It's, it's absolutely right, KG. I think that we owe, uh, I mean, the public owes a massive debt to both the whistleblowers uh, of state capture that, that, that blew the whistle on what was happening, and then also to the, the range of investigative journalists and, and others that worked with whistleblowers to bring so many of those stories to the public. 
you know, your first question about kind of what the commission has done right and what it's done wrong, regardless of how it performed, I think unambiguously what the commission has done is that has vindicated the whistleblowers and the investigative journalists who broke the Gupta leaks and who broke a range of stories around state capture to say that they were absolutely correct. Um, I think that what is what is really still very disturbing, and hopefully Cynthia can come back on and speak to this herself, but that the whistleblowers of state capture still uh, today face such catastrophic consequences for, for what they've done, for stepping out and, and blowing the whistle. Um, and the Zonda Commission has picked up on this, and it's a very clear recommendation of the Commission that South Africa must urgently uh, reform its whistleblowing laws to afford greater protection. Because at the moment, whistleblowers face a very stark choice that when they walk out of institutions in the public or the private sector, and I think particularly in the private sector, they risk not only losing their jobs, but becoming unemployable mm. because companies no longer want to touch someone who is seen as a troublemaker, which is, um, you know, a really inaccurate representation of, of what is happening. And so, you know, as long as we don't have the systems in place to protect whistleblowers, it's very difficult for us as a country to continue pushing people to blow the whistle uh, when they face those those kind of personal and economic consequences. Yeah. Somebody, one of the uh, callers that we have on the show earlier on says, oh, well, uh, it's all nice. You media people come and talk about uh, this commission of inquiry. But we all know, uh, particularly the politicians that have been fingered, we all know that they're going to take the report on review and there won't be any real prosecution that happens, particularly for those that uh, have power or are in power. What is your take in terms of the role of prosecution of people who are in power? Because seemingly it's apparent to your average South African that, well, those people never take any sort of accountability. I think that it's it's this is perhaps one of the most important things for us to recognize so that we can continue putting pressure on the National Prosecuting Authority is that the politicians and, and corporations that are implicated in the state capture report, they may well try and take, some of them may well take the report on review or try to, but that will have absolutely no impact on the MPA's uh, power to prosecute and their ability to continue with prosecutions. And so what the State Capture Commission has done is it's produced this report, which I think is incredibly helpful. They've also handed over all of the hard evidence that form the basis of that report to the prosecuting authority, and it is now up to that authority to act. What I think the South African public is rightly angry about is that for many years, um, from, from the Mbeki administration, but this was entrenched under the, under the Zuma administration, is we've seen continuous attempts to hijack the independence of the MPA and law enforcement, the disbandment of the Scorpions and interference in the Hawks. And therefore, we have the sense that our politicians are able to control those institutions. What is so urgent for us is I think that we need to continue pushing to build a national prosecuting authority that can prosecute without fear or favor, because although the report is given to the president, it is now the MPA's prerogative to assess the evidence and determine whether or not to pursue prosecutions. And what the politicians are telling them should make absolutely no difference uh, as to what they prioritize.
Yeah, we've got Cynthia back on the line. Uh, good morning, Cynthia, and thank you so much for your time. I hope uh, the line has been sorted out. But, you know, I started on trying to ask you a question because, uh, you know, we it was it was clear to anybody who cared to listen that at the heart of <clears throat> the Zonda Commission, uh, the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture, uh, the lifeline of it were the whistleblowers. Uh, but Michael has uh, put to us very clearly some of the challenges that whistleblowers have had to go through and how there should be some sort of reform for whistleblowing uh, laws in our country, uh, especially taking le- learnings, of course, from the Zondo Commission. I want to know what, uh, one, propelled you to be a whistleblower and how whistleblowing inadvertently ended up affecting your life. Thank you very much for having me on the show and welcome to all the listeners. Um, yes, um, a whistle, uh, to whistleblow is not an easy decision and it's not an overnight decision. If you speak to any other whistleblower, they will share the same thought. It's something that you think about long and hard before you make the decision. It's based on your personal ethics and your belief system and your moral compass. And, um, and whatever you're doing in that work, workspace or whatever you encountered with the corruption, it's your conscience that will dictate to you what to do, what's right, and for you to stand up. Um, so it's not an easy decision because some of us, and I, um, I'll include myself here as whistleblower versus others, will decide, look, if I do this, I'll lose my job. If I do that, I, I, it will impact my children, my family, I could lose my home, etc. And this is actually the plight which I'm sure Michael covered, is that the plight of whistleblowers is that they lose everything. It's literally everything, from your livelihood to your home, to your financial status. Some go through divorce, some lose their children in the process. It's horrendous. Um, what made me become a whistleblower is more that um, the, um, the work that I'm doing, I think it's based on my upbringing, my value system from my parents and the way I grew up and my work ethic. And at the time of blowing the whistle was, was really a serious decision that I didn't take lightly. And I made it with my family and friends. We had many discussions of I need to do this. How will I do it? And what's the best options available for me? And then I did it. Yes, what I didn't expect was um, the, the knock-on effect, the retaliation that I received, because, yeah, I thought I was doing my best for my company, uh, stopping a corruption deal that was about to take place, a tender, and saving South Africa oh, about $256 million, which is a quarter of a billion, mm. and yet I still lost my job. So earlier on, you mentioned that the cost of um, of the Zonda Commission being a billion, for me, that is minor in the biggest scheme of things. If you think what the corruption has cost our country, if you just calculate the state capture cost alone, it's over almost, I think, um, one point, more than 1.5 trillion. Uh, ran that's left our country uh, 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 through state capture. So one billion on compiling evidence, getting your whistleblowers to provide that evidence, getting your investigators to uh, go through all the evidence and now ready for the NPA to start taking action. For me, I think that the cost is minor. So if anyone's going to go on about the cost, they are just using it as a smoke screen. It's really minor because 
had everyone done their job correctly, we, we shouldn't have had a Zonda Commission. Yeah. Thank you. Just, just hold uh, some of your thoughts. Uh, let me quickly go to news headlines, and then I want to come back and ask you whether you feel enough is being done or was done to protect you uh, as a whistleblower. It's 10.32. Luanda Maome is standing by with the news headlines. Welcome back. 10.34, uh, 1,824-page report, the final one of uh, the Zonda Commission was delivered to the president last night. We waited from uh, the 15th of June for it. We even waited some more a little bit yesterday uh, because it was meant to originally be delivered at four o'clock in the afternoon and those of us that had electricity at the time when it hit about quarter past six started <laughs> to worry because <laughs> I knew my deadline was coming at 8 p.m. Okay. I started to worry uh, that oh man I may not even see it being handed over if at all because load shedding was coming my way. So we invited Michael Marchant, uh, Head of Investigations at Open Secrets, to talk that report, to talk the four years of uh, the Zondo Commission and even the one billion rand that some lament. But it was also important for us to have on on the panel uh, a whistleblower because we know, and uh, the Chief Justice himself has said, you know, it's a commission that sat largely on the shoulders of whistleblowers. And uh, one of those whistleblowers was Cynthia Stimpel, who is now also author of the book Hijackers on Board, and we've heard the impact that whistleblowing has had on her life. Do you believe, Cynthia, that enough is being done to protect whistleblowers, you know, uh, who are part of even active prosecutions? Thank you for the question, Cathy. No, definitely there's not enough being done to protect whistleblowers, although we have the legislation um, it is not when you like. Let's use my case for instance. I, my lawyers were working with me on my case, but they chose to use the Labour Relations Act and not the Protective Disclosures Act uh, for for my case. Um, in other instances, many lawyers. When um, the work I'm doing now is working with whistleblowers at the Whistleblower House, and when we speak to other whistleblowers. They also have not had their cases. Very few have gone through the Protective Disclosures Act and have not been fully protected. They immediately lose their jobs. They suffer the very occupational detriment, which is stated in the PDA, that you should not be suffering. Um, they, um, through suffering that loss of your job, it obviously has the, um, the effect of you losing everything in your life and having this uh, drastic effect on your finances, your family life, your mental state, your health state. So no, in our country, we need to start. And I think it starts with every organization as well as the um, our, our legislation system, our Department of Justice. Every time the Department of Justice is being interviewed, they use the witness protection um, system and that that is different. Um, the way it's designed in the Act for the witness protection, it's around if you witness a criminal action and then you're protected. But for once you've um, disclosed information of wrongdoing and you reported, no one's going to protect you until your life is under threat. If the beta knew that her life was under threat. Uh, would she still be driving her daughter to school and going home in a normal routine? Yeah. You know, that sort of um, issue is what we need to start considering. So 
you to answer you, no, Kathy. And we definitely, as a country, need to work on it. We need to become more ethical citizens. Um, we need to all speak out when we see things are not ro- uh, uh, going the right way. And it starts in our communities and our local government and setting it up as high as parliament even because we those things that continuously happen that are wrongdoing is what led to the state capture over more than 10 years, uh, which we've all um, been aware of. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, there's going to be listeners along the journey of our conversation who join in to ask uh, you questions. But one of the things you said uh, at the start of our discussion, Michael, was the fact that uh, what the this the State Capture Commission uh, did do for us was give an almost unambiguous roadmap uh, in terms of who they should be sniffing out uh, for prosecutions. Some South Africans, again, are still frustrated at the fact that there's another form months where the president is first going to table the report to parliament and then more things happen after that. When you say there was an unambiguous roadmap and prosecutions should have begun a long time ago, does the law in our country allow that? Uh, You know, for example, uh, when it became apparent, because we used to watch it like a soapy, most of us as South Africans, when it, uh, you know, it was clear one or two or three, even four years ago, that there were specific people that were clearly almost most driving these things, but as we were watching, we were just average people. We're not lawyers. We're not, uh, you know, prosecutors. Uh, what should the prosecution's authority have done at that time, a year or two or three or even four years ago? So the answer to that is is quite straightforward: is that they should have been acting on these cases. Um, I think that one of the difficulties and and the Justice Zondo addressed this last night at the handover of the report, is that one of the things the commission did not look at was the attempt to capture and undermine law enforcement agencies um, in general over the years of state capture. And what we have to acknowledge is that that has severely undermined the capacity and the expertise and the will within both the SAPs, the, the Hawks and the MPA to be able to bring those cases. And so it is not an accident. Um, It was very much a deliberate attempt to undermine those institutions. And we saw evidence presented at the commission that the MPA was pursuing um, dubious cases against people who were standing up to state capture, for example, and yet not pursuing cases of corruption and prosecutions. But, and, and so I think that's an important part of the story. On the other hand, it is very important, again, to stress this, which is that the MPA and the police do not need to wait for the president to table the report or deal with recommendations in four months time to be able to pursue prosecutions. Uh, they have been working with the commission's uh, evidence for a long period. Um, and we have started to see some movement. There has been movement, for example, in the free states to bring prosecutions related to the asbestos scandal. And so we've started to see some movement. I think what we want to see is a lot more energy from the from the MPA and for them to continue to keep some Africans in the loop about state capture cases where they are. Obviously, there are some things they cannot share, but there's nothing to slow down their ability to move on those right now. Yeah. Uh, Brian in Cape Town wants to join the conversation. Good morning, Brian. Good morning to you and your listeners. Um, KG, I just wanted to applaud that lady, Cynthia Stemple, uh, for being uh, so brave as she is. 
and um, I hope it all goes well for her. Uh, my comment was basically initially just about a previous caller making a comment about corruption prior to 1994. Look, there was lots of corruption prior to 1994, but I need to remind him and others that the, the sellout took place at Codessa, where serious, uh, with serious implications, Secret deals were struck behind the backs of the masses and uh, at the Codessa. They even, the current ANC leadership actually also agreed to pay the apartheid debt, for example. Generals, police generals, army generals were all, it was agreed that they will retain their positions and the judiciary would remain firmly in place. A lot of deals took place. So, um, if you need to investigate that era, then you need to go back to Codessa. That's where all the secret and hidden deals are made. So uh, Codessa, currently I don't have much uh, hope for the Zondo Commission prosecutions to follow uh, because the state is an organization of the ruling ruling party. And um, to me, it's like the burglar appointing the watchdog. (laughs) So... um, you know, it's it's uh, we won't. Find, I don't have any hope. I don't think there's going to be any incarcerations of any of the the um, high-profile ANC politicians. Uh, this is why Jacob Zuma is still ducking and diving 14 years plus after the arms deal. So um, I think this is it's not going to be much fruit. Uh, corruption will only stop when these individuals are incarcerated. Yeah. Thank you, Brian, for your call. I wanted to also, um, uh, Michael, ask you about uh, corporates, because there were a lot of corporates that were implicated in uh, state capture in our country. How should they be and uh, be prosecuted? I think that it, it is one of the gaps of the commission's work. Uh, and when we started the conversation, you know, we, we spoke about what the commission has got right and, and what it hasn't got so right. And I think one of the weaknesses is that the commission has not properly, I think, dealt with the role of companies, both in South Africa and around the world, in, um, in state capture and corruption. And I think that what we saw in state capture was a, was a very globalized system of extraction. Uh, that there were companies uh, from from Europe, from China, from a whole range of other places who were happy to benefit from the Gupta capture of SOEs as long as they were getting a cut. If you look at the Chinese rail companies involved in Transnet is a very good example, which was the single biggest extraction point. And I think we've seen a little bit less of that coming out in the commission. If you look at the most recent report looking at money flows, the commission acknowledges that HSBC, for example, was a central bank Uh, that facilitated the movement of money by the Gupta family and others out of South Africa into money laundering vehicles in Hong Kong, Dubai, and other places. And yet we don't see a strong recommendation coming forward from the commission, not just to engage HSBC to find out where the money went, but for authorities both here and elsewhere to consider whether investigations criminal and otherwise into, into HSBC are appropriate. And I think that this is another point to to kind of pick up here is that the commission has done an extraordinary amount of work. That's absolutely true. But 
uh, there are gaps. And those gaps, then it is up to us in civil society and the public in general to determine what else needs to be pushed forward. And I think corporate accountability and building the capacity again within our state to deal with, with corporate crime, uh, it's something that at the moment that's sorely lacking and that needs to remain on the agenda because state capture was not a was not simply a problem of public procurement. There was no doubt huge corruption in the state when it came to the procurement contracts, but there were very large, powerful corporations that were part of that system and benefiting from it. And not many of them appeared before the commission in the same way that our politicians did. And they have not had to face the same kind of scrutiny that, that we certainly believe they should have. Yeah. Cynthia, I want to bring you back uh, it regards the reform, if at all, of whistleblowing laws. Uh, when you now look back in hindsight, do you think that, uh, you know, one, uh, the the report should specifically, uh, you know, I obviously haven't gone through the 1,824 pages. <laughs> I don't think actually anybody has up to now. Uh, but, you know, we all scrambled for certain highlights, knowing that we're coming on air uh, this morning. But when you, as a whistleblower, uh, look back in hindsight and looking at the experiences that you had as a whistleblower, do you think that it's imperative, one, that the commission should have made a specific recommendation in terms of reforming whistleblowing laws in our country? Because it's not only whistleblowers uh, that, you know, were threatened. Because when you heard, uh, you know, the interaction between the president and the the, the chief justice yesterday, it was clear virtually anybody uh, who was uh, part of the people that were even working in the, with, with the chief justice in the commission, people were constantly threatened. So let's look back in hindsight, do you think it's important that we take this lesson, this fundamental lesson in history, and knowing the value and the importance of whistleblowers and empowering them differently by reforming whistleblowing laws in our country? Definitely, Katie, definitely. Um, So in the very first draft, um, uh, the first report of the State Capture Commission, um, the recommendations were there regarding the whistleblowers. And um, he then stated that we're going to need um, change to legislation. He gave specific that we need a separate entity to manage the whole whistleblowing platform and um, the laws around it. So those recommendations have been made already in the very first report. Um, Currently, what I do know, having worked with quite a few whistleblowers and civil societies like Active Citizens Movement, Whistleblowers for Change, and the Whistleblower House, um, Ahmed Katrada Foundation, uh, Corruption Watch, um, and various others, currently looking, um, there's a team looking at how to best present what was what would protect whistleblowers, assist whistleblowers, and encourage future whistleblowers. And hopefully they will put that presentation forward in the next month or two. Obviously, we're all waiting for the, which we've received now last night, the final DCJ report. And once we've got this report is to interrogate it and then add further recommendations. I agree with Michael saying that there has been shortcomings, but this doesn't stop us as individuals and citizens of this country, as civil society, as corporate, as business, to start changing 
how um, what we want to how we want to stop um, corruption within our country. And yes, um, all the if you look at my case, there were banks implicated. For instance, like Medbank was implicated in my case. Yet um, nothing has come of it. And so those. The banks, those individuals, the corporates need to be taken to task. They need to be investigated. And we need to come up with a method. And it's obviously, it cannot just stop with the final recommendations currently in the state capture report. I think civil society needs to play a big role besides the law enforcement and individuals. And we need to start taking little tasks to see where we can make a difference to effect change. And two, prosecute where we can. Thank yeah. you. Let me let you go get some water, uh, Cynthia, uh, because even I have water in the studio. Lots of talking we're doing. I want to come back to you while we allow Cynthia some uh, time to get water, Michael. Uh, you, you said um, uh, at the beginning of our conversation, uh, now we know where, where the noise is coming from and, and why there even was noise uh, in anticipation of uh, this report coming out. And we, everybody, of course, uh, uh, a lot of journalists chased uh, the Arthur Frazier part um, uh, in the in the in the report, and we we know now officially that uh, you know he himself is implicated in millions that went missing uh, from um, the SSA. And I tie the, all those things up to what a listener is asking us, uh, and that listener sent a message on WhatsApp saying. Why don't we just create special courts that are assigned specifically and only to prosecute state capture cases to make sure uh, that things move a lot faster than that they would potentially move if everything were to go, you know, the, the normal route? Is that something that you think would work? I understand why it, that, that it's an appealing idea off the outset to, to build something separate, but I, I'm not convinced that it, that it is the way to go. And the, and the reason for this is that we, so I think it's certainly helpful that there is a specialized and dedicated investigative unit within the MPA to work on these cases. And so having the investigative directorate with the mandate and hopefully continues to build the resources to be able to build the cases, I think is absolutely uh, is absolutely correct. However, what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to work through our court system. I don't think that once the cases are prepared and once we empower the prosecution to bring them, that there's any reason that these uh, proceedings cannot proceed through the normal court system. And, and what is important to remember is that I think what we see with a lot of state capture cases is that the, the MPA is prepping cases, bringing them to the court, and then we see massive delays. And sometimes the reaction is, oh, this must be a problem with the court system. But often that delay is the fault of the prosecutor, that the prosecutor is either not prepared or they ask the court for further time. And so I think that we would be better served focusing our energies on that phase before ensuring that the MPA is properly resourced and that we don't potentially distract ourselves by, by continuing to build or try and build new institutions to be able to do, deal with these issues. Yeah. Having said that, I do think it's important to remember that the special tribunal that is linked to the work done by the SIU does allow a special process, particularly for civil claims and asset recovery linked to state capture, to proceed 
even when prosecutions can't or aren't. And that is an important thing that needs to continue. Yeah. I fundamentally agree with what Cynthia said earlier, is that the billion rand spent on the commission is a lot. It is nothing near to what this country lost through state capture, and it's not close to what can be recovered if the authorities act now um, to be able to trace and recover those funds. Yeah, uh, we have a caller. Oh, by the way, I have to tell the listeners that uh, the health minister, Dr. Joe Patler, is briefing uh, the media at 11 o'clock sharp to tell us about uh, the regulations regarding COVID-19. And we're going to take that briefing live. We have a caller uh, in Guazul Natal. Lorraine wants to join in on the conversation. Lorraine, good morning. Good morning, to you. <clears throat> Pardon me and your panels your panelists this morning, I'd just firstly like to give a vote of gratitude to these people who all risk life and limb for what's best in the interest of the country. And I knew there were going to be contrary views as always, uh, but that's not what I'm going to talk about now. My confidence in President Ramaphosa has far been eroded, uh, particularly in view of the 3% increase for one sector of the public uh, servants versus the other, and his excuse or the excuses we've heard is that one sector has not received uh, increases for I don't know what it was. I think three percent. I could be mistaken. But we are comparing, uh, not comparing apples with apples. If you look at what people in hospitals, etc., are contributing, what they have contributed largely during the COVID nineteen lockdown psychological problems, etc., etc. So I think that is grossly unfair. And I've said this before, this is one time when I will agree with the union that needs to be probed. Um, okay. Coming back to where we're at right now, I'll, I just want to give a vote of gratitude. I cannot thank these guys enough. I'm struggling to hear you. I think you've got your hand on uh, your 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 speaker, and we get parts uh, of what you're saying, and and certain parts we don't get. So maybe the producers call uh, Lorraine back so that we can hear uh, the the rest of what uh, Lorraine was trying to say. So where to from here? Here we are, uh, um, Cynthia. It's uh, the last report is finally out. You know, a lot of people uh, were <laughs> were saying a lot. Lot of things on social media saying no it's not going to be co- to come out it's being cooked uh you know it's out now it's done it's folded the commission has folded uh but we have the information that we do have uh in our hands what according to you as a whistleblower who experienced corruption in action right would an ideal south africa look like five 10, 15, 20 years from now, uh, knowing what we know and knowing what you experienced um, in in uh, whistleblowing in South Africa? Thank you for the question. So um, how would I like to see an ideal South Africa? Firstly, from a whistleblower perspective, we need to act on the State Capture Commission report, and it's incumbent on each one of us to do something about it in our own little way. Um, some 
issues are too big to tackle, so it's not for us as individuals, but rather the NPA and your law enforcement agencies. But there are smaller things in our communities which we can easily do something. So I feel that every person needs to hold themselves accountable in order for us to achieve that. Because if we don't, and we only leave it to law enforcement, or we only leave it to leaders, then we will not achieve this uh, idyllic situation that we would like for South Africa. The vision I have of South Africa, and I believe it's possible, and I have hope. The earlier, one of the earlier callers said that they're losing hope. I have hope. And hope comes with action. You can't sit and have hope and not do something about it. I believe we all are called to action here and do something about what we want for South Africa. If we want it to be a safe place to live in, we need to make it safe, but not through means where we become vigilantes or we become um, um, extremely um, disastrous in damaging uh, equipment and infrastructure, etc. So it's, it's, again, bringing back to accountability of how we do it and, and the mechanisms and the resources we have to use it. Our police our state, uh, needs to show that they are accountable because they are not. Each of our law enforcement agencies, each of our um, infrastructure areas like Eskom, like uh, Randwater, like Transnet, South African Airways, needs to show accountability. It is taxpayers' money that have been used to fund them. And the more damage done to our country, the less funding is going into uh, national treasury to supply funding for these institutes to be running. And so if, if you have this um, circle running that because of the corruption, we, if you look this year alone, when SARS announced what, what they have really um, uh, collected, it's going to be far less. Yeah. And so how can you improve your situation? So vision for me for the new South Africa, uh, I would say for our South Africa, is for us as South Africans, to come together, to work together and see ourselves as South Africans first, rather than across racial lines and across... Um, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Cynthia. Thank Michael, you. your last thoughts before we go to the Health Minister for that live address as we wrap up. I, I think, uh, KG, that I, I've said some of these things before, but I, I, I really think the priority is for independent institutions you know, that we shouldn't conflate simply with uh, governments or the executive to act. And so on the one hand, that's law enforcement. On the other hand, that is institutions like parliament who have also fundamentally failed the public. Um, you know, we are all as the public living through the consequences and the costs of state capture every day. Um, and so it's absolutely essential that those, those agencies and those institutions act. I think the, the kind of watchword for, for us at Open Secrets would be accountability. We need to see that now for the corporations and individuals who are implicated, and we want to see action. And I think that it's that accountability that will, that will rebuild trust and hope in South Africans that there is a possibility to, to rid us of corruption, but also to move forward. Yeah, I thank the both of you uh, for your time engaging me on uh, this uh, uh, state capture report. Thank you for your thoughts and your insights. Uh, Michael Marchant, Head of Investigations at Open Secrets, and uh, Cynthia Stimple, uh, whistleblower and author. By the way, where's your book available, Cynthia? 
Yes, it is at any of the bookshops, but I could also get one to use the studio if you'd like. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Cynthia Stimple, whistleblower and author of the book Hijackers on Board. It's 11 news time.